You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. I, you know, introduced you, Kino. It's so good to see you, Kino, <laughs> face-to-face. I'm going to be in Florida in a month. Maybe we can connect. But anyway, as I said, Kino would prefer to have a coconut milk in her hand <laughs> at, while she is in the midst of living an, a yogic life. As I said, a fifth series Ashtanga practitioner and teacher, senior in the lineage, and also an author of four books on yoga overall but uh, um, Ashtanga series specifically. And she's soon going to be coming out with a book on accessibility within Ashtanga yoga, which I cannot wait to hear more about today in this talk and also to read when it's published. But with regard to what I was you know, mentioning, uh, you know, Kino, we talked, we talked about this multiple times. I just would like to start off the call to see if you have anything you'd like to say about the sexual misconduct and power abuses that have been uh, your community has been facing uh, recently as we get our well-rounded, holistic, and foundational conversation about your lineage going. So as you said to everyone who is joining, it's very important that the leaders of every tradition and anyone in position of power formally acknowledge the harm that's been done. So as an Ashtanga yoga practitioner for more than 20 years, and personally as a survivor of sexual assault myself, out, completely outside of the Ashtanga lineage, I personally spent a good deal of time sitting with and reckoning the impacts and the implications of the sexual assaults done under the guise of hands-on assists committed by the founder of Ashtanga yoga, uh, K. Pat- Krishna Patabi Joyce. And it is absolutely an act of harm and an act that goes against the very heart and spirit of what yoga represents. And in terms of the Ashtanga yoga community, we as a community are still very much in the process of reckoning with the implications of the power dynamic between the Guru Shisha tradition and in the Guru Shisha mm-hmm. tradition. Patabi Joyce's grandson, Arsharad Joyce, has firm- formally acknowledged the abuses committed by his grandfather, which as a South Indian male head of a lineage inherited from his family, uh, this is a big step forward in the formal acknowledgement and reconciliation that is necessary to bring about healing. It's by no means the end. I, for one, per speaking personally, never experienced the abuse and neither saw the abuse. So it took me a good while to come to terms with it. And it definitely brought up a sense of disillusionment and a sense of questioning that I think ultimately many Ashtanga yoga practitioners have sat with or maybe even are still sitting with. And yet this is part of the process of growth and evolution to finally understand what it means to question the individuals who were once beyond question, humanizes those individuals, and then empowers the student to rise up and represent themselves. As a teacher of Ashtanga Yoga, I'm personally very committed 
to continuing the discussion around how to best update the guru model, whether we enter into a, a new definition of what it means to be a guru and a shisha or a teacher mm -hmm. and a student, or mm -hmm. if it means moving beyond that model and creating something new entirely. For me personally, I'm entirely committed to updating the method of Ashtanga Yoga and making, and, and making right the wrongs of the past to empower the agency of the student while at the same time respecting the ancient authority of the lineage. And this is a dialogue that I think is ongoing and something that I'm uh, committed to personally. Mm -hmm. I want you know, I didn't think I'd say this like completely off the top, but Kino has an excellent, uh, she has a podcast, first of all, and I should also say founder of a really interesting and excellent uh, site called Ohm Stars which is this all-inclusive, well, your podcast is too, but all-inclusive, you know, site of so many different types of yoga. I'm sure many of you follow her on Instagram and probably see Omstars right off of her handle, but I really recommend checking, you know, Omstars out. Um, it, but, but I should say that a recent podcast that Kino, you uh, published, I guess, or dropped, you know, called The Responsibility of the Student. Was that the title of it? I'm going to send it on the chat in just a second. Yeah, so it was the, 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 the discussion uh, and that, that is involved in the podcast that mm -hmm. recently came out, questions in this age mm -hmm and this age of really centering the student's journey uh, mm -hmm. along this practice to question what is the responsibility of the student in regards to how the student shows up and interacts with not only the teacher, but also the sacred knowledge that comes from the shastras and the tradition of yoga. What is the responsibility of the student as they enter the room and how mm -hmm. they hold themselves in relationship to themselves, in relationship to the community, in relationship mm -hmm. to the teacher, and in relationship to the teaching which is sometimes and quite often can be distinct from the teacher. So it's a question you know, yeah. that I think is worth, worth discussing. If we're going yeah. to question you know, the, the, the power dynamic and we're going to question the ancient role of lineages, then I think it's worth, worth questioning and, and, and how we want the student to be going forward, not to right. place blame on any students that have been in the past, but just to question if we want this new model and we want to update things, what does that look like? You know, there's That's, a lot of talk yeah. around, you know, what the teachers can do and what the teachers can this and the, the however, the, the, the students are a huge part of the journey of yoga. What I always like to say is it's the students who choose the teacher. It's the students who actually have the power because this, it's the, it, this interaction between student and teacher is almost, it's just so much reliant on the student showing up, doing the work and, and interacting right. with the teacher. Right. Totally. And I just shared that link and I, uh, to the podcast. It's really good. I recommend it highly. Um, and also, I should say that Shastra, can you uh, translate that? We're going to translate some words that come up. Mm. Kino has been studying Sanskrit for at least the 20 years that you've been <laughs> practicing. And so we want to make sure that we always... So can you translate Shastra so for Shastra us? Is just, Shastra is just like a, a, a word for scripture. So the, the, the yogic scriptures, the yogic Shastras, and this mm -hmm. is another way of saying the, 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 sacred, the, the sacred teachings that come from the spiritual lineage of yoga and very much the sacred teachings 
beings that come from uh, the, the the spiritual lineage of of, of India as a mm-hmm. whole. Because you know you mm-hmm. can say that yoga is one of the orthodox schools of Indian spiritual thought of liberation, but not the only one. And so when we talk right. about the shastras, some of these scriptures are are, are are discussing yoga methodology, but some of them are are also discussing enlightenment methodology that can then be applied to yoga as well. That's right. That's right. Um, so before we go there, I'd like, love to put a pin in that. I'd love to put a pin in the scripture and the spiritual, uh, you know, tradition that is yoga that has been embedded uh, from the beginning, essentially, as far as we know, among a bunch of other uh, line- lineages themselves. But let's go right into this guru model. And I don't mean like guru model, let's unpack it, but let's talk about you and your guru. Let's talk about what draw- drew you to Ashtanga Let's talk about the definition, you know, and please feel free, but, you know, my definition of guru is, you know, destroyer of darkness, like bringer of light. And so um, what is that, what you experienced when you began practicing Ashtanga yoga? And let's talk a little bit about what this guru experience, this guru-shishya relationship, shishya, by the way, means student. So guru-shishya that uh, Kino was speaking about before is the guru-student relationship. Let's talk about that. So when I was uh, 22 years old, I walked into an Ashtanga yoga class and I had no idea what I was getting into. It was, it was a class labeled as full primary series. And if I'm honest, I just went in because it fit my schedule. And I was overwhelmed with the opening prayer that we do in the Ashtanga yoga method, which is a traditional Sanskrit uh, opening prayer. And it's an invocation to Patanjali, who is the author of the Yoga Sutras, and who the word Ashtanga, which means eight limbs, or the eight-limbed path of, of yoga, uh, is derived from. So this opening prayer invocation of, to Patanjali Tanjali, it was the first thing that I heard in this class, and I'd never heard the Sanskrit language before um, without recognition that it was Sanskrit. And then this is traditionally done in call and response. And then the primary series can take, you know, an hour and a half to up to two hours. And this was something that completely overwhelmed me. At the end of the practice, there was this first feeling of interacting with the practice that I knew I was going to come back and do it again. And I showed up the next Thursday. Within one year, I had made the decision. I had already, within less than a year of practice, I had made the decision to go to India. And this happened because I joined a traditional Mysore-style Ashtanga yoga practice group. And Mysore-style is named after the city called Mysore, which is the city in South India and Karnataka, where Patabi Joyce and his grandson Shara Joyce, where they live and teach and run the yoga shala or the yoga space that's there. So... When uh, one day at the end of this traditional practice, the teacher there pointed at a man, like a picture on the wall, not like that, but a picture of Patabi Joyce on the wall, and I didn't know who it was, and he said, I want to wish these two students a, a good trip to go to India. They're going to meet my teacher, Patabi Joyce, and we all clapped for them, and I just remember my heart leapt up and said, I want to go too, and I don't know what that meant, but... I, then I read his book, which was called Yoga Mala. And when I, the night I finished the book, I had a dream about him and about going to India. So I woke up the next morning and I bought my ticket. And I said I was going to go for two months. And the intention was never to be a yoga teacher. The intention was always just to go and study. I just knew I had to go. I didn't know it was just this calling that leapt up from my soul that just said, you have to go and do this. And so I bought my ticket that day. I got my visa. And in the old days, there was no online booking system. 
the instructions were write a letter to the address on the back of the book. And if you don't hear back, then you can go. So I was a little impatient. So I sent a FedEx and I just wanted to make sure you know, that it arrived. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah, you got the Richard, the receipt. Like yeah, I got the, but, the, but, but what you don't know about that is that FedEx only takes responsibility for the package arriving to the Indian subcontinent. They don't take responsibility. <laughs> they can just confirm that it's entered at the Delhi International Airport. And then, oh, then yeah. I, you know, then I sat on the airplane and I, uh, you know, I was on and I felt that it almost felt like all of the accoutrements of personality and ego were being stripped away with each hour that I was transiting away from the United States and all I'd known up until that moment and everything I'd known myself to be. I was in school at NYU for graduate studies in interdisciplinary science, and my graduate degree took it takes a, a, a um, uh, is a is is what's called in, interdisciplinary studies means you can draw from multiple disciplines and I took uh, the feminist studies and political science critique of the science of agriculture and that's kind oh. of what my area of specialization was so I was very I was very deep in feminist studies and I had mm. an immediate reaction to the thing that everybody told me I was going to have to do which is that everyone said the moment you meet Patabi Joyce you're going to have to touch his feet and bow down and yeah. I remember having a big reaction to that and spending a good deal of time coming up with a speech in my head that I was going to give about how I'm from the United States and I believe in equity and we're equal human beings, so therefore I wasn't going to bow, but I do respect him very much as a, as a teacher. And I had this big speech that I'd, I'd, I'd written kind of, um, you know, drafts of. And uh, when I finally arrived to his doorstep, it was the only address that I had. And I there was the, the travel from uh, New York City to... I thought I, Paris, Paris to Delhi, Delhi to Bangalore, Bangalore to a taxi to Mysore. It was, you know, something like 35 hours from the time I left New York City until I looked Patabi Joyce in the eyes. And the first thing he said to me was, you wrote letter? And I said, yes, I wrote the letter. And then he said, tomorrow's 6 a.m. you take practice. And before <laughs> my mind could play the script something in my heart had leapt up and I just bowed down and touched his feet and, th and said, thank you. And I was there the next day to take practice. And mm -hmm. I look back now and I can see that that early meeting, not only with Patabi Joyce, but with the atmosphere of the lineage, the community, what you could call the Sangha, and the Sangha is that Sanskrit word for the community of spiritual practitioners, really steered the course and direction of my life. It was this kind of really powerful infusion that changed the fabric of my being. It's not that I went there and then he assisted me and then I had this big realization or anything. It was more that I was just there practicing for these two months, and I didn't even realize the change that had transpired within myself until I looked back mm -hmm. retrospectively and was able to finally see it. When I came right. back from those two months in, 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 uh, in India, my life had changed. I, I didn't realize that that was the pivotal moment that would steer the whole direction of my life towards full immersion in the yogic path and yogic studies, but it was. When I came mm -hmm. back from India, then... Um, I was still in graduate school. I still had one more year to complete. I remember very distinctly, I had to go and meet with my thesis advisor. So I was meeting with my thesis advisor and I was presenting to him the whole, like the, all of the, the research that I had gathered for my dissertation, which was to, as I mentioned before, take this interdisciplinary uh, critique of the science of agriculture. And I wanted to focus in on this, the apple farming because it was a good test model for the different types mm -hmm. of agriculture and mm -hmm. the uh, implicit biases that are contained in how this, uh, you know, this methodology is writ large on the planet. So as I was explaining, all of this to him at the end of it, at the, when I'm supposed to get his approval, he said, 
let me just stop you there for a moment. And I thought I was in trouble. And he, he said to me, you are totally different than when I last saw you. What did you do over the summer? And I immediately just said, oh, nothing. I, you know, what do you think of the thesis? And he said, no, no, you, what did you do this summer? You were, were you here in New York? No, no, I wasn't in New York. Where were you? I didn't want to talk about it. You know, I felt this was a private experience. And, and I said, well, you know, I went to India and I uh, spent two months studying yoga with this uh, yoga master in Mysore. And it's this, it's called Ashtanga Yoga. And it's this lineage-based practice where you do it six days a week. And I started to talk about what I knew about the method. Immediately, my thesis advisor said, wonderful, I'd like to learn this. Can you come and teach my wife at uh, Tuesday at 6 p.m.? And I thought, and immediately I said, I'm not a qualified yoga teacher. I've never done a teacher training. I'm not able to teach you, please. And I started to write down the list of other people in Manhattan. You know, this is like New York City, the epicenter of everything. You know, you could almost call it epicenter, at least of the USA in that, in that way. Yeah. It's kind of, you can find the best of everything there. So then I, I just I gave him the name of all these other yoga teachers. He said, no, 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 I want to learn from you. And at this point, I started to make a calculation in my mind that I shouldn't say no to my thesis advisor. Otherwise, this may negatively impact my thesis. So I said, it's totally fine if you won't go to any of the other teachers. I will show up and I'll share with you what I know as long as you know that I'm not a yoga teacher and I won't accept payment from you. So that's essentially how I started teaching. And more and more things started to happen like that for me. It was never my choice to make yoga a career path. I pursued the path of the student, the ardent student, and it's still the place within the methodology of yoga that I feel the most comfortable and I feel I benefit the most. If there's a role that I would, would, would really recommend everyone in not only Ashtanga yoga, but any methodology, it's spend as much time immersed in the student's journey as possible. Don't mm -hmm. rush into making a career path out of yoga. The student's yeah. journey is where the magic happens. The student's journey is where those pivotal moments of transformation happen. It's where you can absorb the gems of the lineage. And we are at this crazy pivotal time in mm -hmm. the history of you could, yoga practice oh, where yoga is global, but at the same time, the, 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 the older generation of teachers are starting to pass away or have already passed away. So right. there's this kind of very... <clears throat> Very, very interesting transition, and we we now are standing on the shoulders of those individuals who were who gave themselves as students for long right. periods of time because they're the ones right. who were who were able to soak up the knowledge. Right. You know, I just I told you before the call that I had a, a long lunch with John Schumacher, who's on this call today, and I was just saying exactly that to him that, you know, our generation, you and me, of you know, generally in the same sort of. I mean, you had the. Uh, unique advantage of being sort of a contemporary mind, but being able to study directly with Atabi Joyce, whereas my teacher, for example, John Schumacher, is 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 in that generation, you know, of of handing off the handing off the teachings, handing off the the learning to those of us who theoretically and hopefully have a lot of years left, you know, to share what we are learning every day on the mat and every day in our practice. So there are a couple things I want to pin and then ask specifically about the primary series and about your experience as you began to learn it. So the first thing I was thinking about is that I wonder if your thesis advisor, as a fellow learner and teacher himself, saw in you this embodied knowledge and experienced this full embodiment of what you had been learning. I mean, I think it's also very interesting just as a maybe related to this talk or not, but it seems to me it is that here you were learning about 
the body of the earth. I mean, you were learning about land, about agriculture, and then you went to learn about like your own body and your own consciousness. And it's a very interesting connection that at least I was hearing. And so it, and, and to sort of amplify or to second what you're saying about the learning and the study is that not to rush into being a yoga teacher, but also being there six days a week at 6 a.m. would suggest that you were spending double digit hours per day listening to this teacher teach you how to do this thing, how to do that thing. So that thing is the primary series, I think. So is that what you did when you first got there? Can we talk about like an Ashtanga practitioner who would come to take a class from you today? Does it look like what you were learning from him then? Can we break down the actual series itself or the motions of the body that you take people through or were taken through by your teacher then? Mm. So I think there's two things to, to, to take a look at there. The first is for everyone to know that the Ashtanga Yoga method in terms of the postural series is broken up into what is, what is referred to as six series. So one, two, three, four, five, six. But is actually, if according to the traditional Sanskrit, is the Yoga Chikitsa Nadi Shodhana and Shtiravaga, only three series. So we have the okay. primary series, which is first series, Nadi Shodhana, which is second series, and Shtiravaga, which is considered the advanced series. But then there's advanced A, B, C, and D. And we can translate that as yoga chikitsa, which is uh, healing or yoga therapy. And we take a look at the the principal notion of the primary series is creating the foundation of health Mm. and uh, and function and optimal function in the body and the mind. And that Mm. order of postures is very much... Uh, designed to be made accessible to everyone uh, who mm. wishes to practice with many modifications, options, variations to open mm. up the practice to all who would seek to enter the methodology. Nadi Shodhana, which is the second series, is aimed at nervous system cleansing. And once we get into Nadi Shodhana, there are some presuppositions that the Ashtanga Yoga practice makes, not only physically, but spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. It's harder, mm. more demanding, and can bring up more obstacles. And many people who quit Ashtanga Yoga quit in Nadi Shodhana because the emotionality of second series or Nadi Mm. Shodhana is very, very intense. Once you pass the obstacles of Nadi Shodhana, very few people who begin Shtirabhaga or the advanced practice, I've noticed, quit because they've learned how to face adversity and how to use that adversity to further their spiritual development within their own context and within their own practice. Shtirabhaga is an increasingly more difficult series. And A, B, C, and D, uh, we can translate Shtirabhaga as steadiness or steady strength or sometimes mm-hmm. translated into graceful strength. Um, mm-hmm. The Sanskrit word Shtira includes strength and steadiness of mind. And then when the only issue with the presentation of Ashtanga Yoga is that many people falsely equate uh, advanced poses with more spiritual enlightenment, but that's not actually the case in the Ashtanga method. You know, my teacher often said many people first series practice shanti, which means peace coming. Other students, second series, Nadi Shodhana practice peace or shanti also coming. And then he would shake his head and furrow his brow and say, other students, advanced A section, B section, C section, so many asanas, no shanti coming for them. Mm-hmm. So the idea mm-hmm. is that more asanas does not equal more spiritual development, but that mm-hmm. depth in yoga is about the inner journey. So we don't want to mm-hmm. treat Ashtanga yoga as a linear path where we accumulate asanas like mm-hmm. trophies. But the mm-hmm. idea is that even though as human beings, 
We are all equal. Each of us is born with various advantages and disadvantages that can cross various intersections. A, a physical ability is one of the big intersections that many of us sit with. Some people are born naturally flexible. Some people are not. Some people are born with natural strength. Some people are not. I'm personally not born with natural strength at all. I was not born with natural flexibility, but it has come easier. I was never a dancer. I was never a gymnast. I was never on a sports team. So some people come to the practice having previously trained their body for better or worse, sometimes for an advantage and sometimes for a disadvantage. And mm -hmm. it's easy to import the methodology of achievement into the yoga practice. And mm -hmm. when someone sees one, two, three, four, or five, six, we think six is the best, but it's not the case in the Ashtanga method. And it's very important for people to realize that. However, the person who is naturally flexible, they have to be challenged. So we have all these asanas yeah. so that this person, they have so much natural flexibility, so we have to find yeah. some asana that can challenge them. Same thing with the strength. But my teacher said, if you can find your shanti in the first breath of the practice, you're further on the path to enlightenment than, you know, uh, someone who is doing powerful handstands but is still thinking negative right. thoughts. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and along those lines, you mentioned that, you know, the guru is the dispeller of darkness. This comes from the guru stotram, agnana timirandasya, nyananjana shalakaya, chakshurun militam yena, dasmai shri gurave namaha. So this is one of the shlokas or mantras that my teacher would often recite. And this is the mm -hmm. spark. So it's not only that the guru is the dispeller of darkness, agnana timirandasya, not only is the guru the dispeller of darkness, but the guru is the spark that lights your own candle of liberation. And this mm -hmm. is important. This is the transmission that happens with the community. Mm -hmm. With And this is the reason mm -hmm. we give thanks to the guru. Because mm -hmm. it's like, hey, because I was there, the spark, which is my spark, right. got right. lit up. Yeah. So we give thanks not to, you know, give that person ultimate authority, but we give thanks. That's my Shri Gurave Nama. Thank you, my teacher. Without yeah. you, I would have never stepped onto this path. You shine the light for the next step. Now that light lives within me. Thank you. We give thanks. It's right. ability. So important. Can you? So I want. I have a, a one a couple questions on the the mantra that you just uh, told us. It, could you two things? Is it listed? Is it written in Sanskrit on your website or no? Uh, you can chance? find the Guru Stotram. We teach it in our trainings, our two hundred hour okay. hour courses. We teach yeah, it. Yeah, the, the Guru Stotram. Many people know the first refrain, and this is very popular, uh, like in. Yeah many styles of yoga. The first refrain, Guru Stotram, uh, is just the, you know, the, the, the chant giving thanks to the Guru. That's yeah, let's break it down. Let's just, I, I'm going to ask Trisha so you can find a link, but let's, okay, so Guru Stotram, I didn't yeah. say that very well, but that's thanks to the Guru, <laughs> and then what? And then what? Uh, so the Guru Stotram, that's the name of the... Uh, okay, got it. Uh-huh. And then you can find uh, the, this, you can find the Guru Stotram, Oh, where can we find this? My chanting teacher from, from Mysore, Jayashree, she, yeah. she is teaching the Guru Stotram. But what I was going to say is most people know the Guru Stotram with the first line. The first uh -huh. line, Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo, Maheshwaraha. This one you've heard before. Yes, I have, but I bet a lot of people on the call have not. So what she's saying is basically they're talking about a guru of and then... Can you guru say it again? Brahma, right. So right. Guru, guru Brahma. Brahma. Right. Guru and then? is Brahma. Brahma, the creator. So Guru right. is the spark of creation. Guru right. is Vishnu, the sustainer. The Guru is all that keeps me, giving me sustenance on the path. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Guru Devo Maheshwaraha. Guru Deva is also the destroyer who destroys my ego and takes away what no longer serves me. Uh, and so Guru is the ultimate consciousness. So this is uh, uh, Guru Sakshat Parabrahma. Guru is... is, is 
is God, in other words. Yeah. So like the ultimate right. guru is God. Um, well, and that's my Shri Gurave Namaha. It's just the namaste, right? Right. So Got it. That's great. That's great. I wanted to make sure people could capture that because I heard you also say this in the podcast and I've heard you say it elsewhere. So, and it's a mantra. So it's important yeah. to sort of yeah. understand that sort of channeling. And, and also, I hope everybody heard her say like, her mantra teacher. So it's just amazing to hear you talk about not just having, you know, your, you know, guru posthumously since he's passed, but also you now continue to have a teacher teaching you mantra, mm -hmm. which is amazing. And so if you, and if you and, want to do the second line, the Ajnana Timiranda. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so this is a good one to define. So this is where that notion of the guru of the dispeller of darkness comes in. So mm -hmm. uh, so this this line, so th this, this part of it is essentially where the translation is, uh, the guru is the one who opens our eyes and removes the ignorance of blindness. Right? The guru removes the darkness of ignorance or blindness. Nyanandjana shalakaya opens our spiritual eyes so we can see clearly. And so this is a lot of the yoga path is about removing the illusions or delusions, the delusions of the ego, the delusions yeah. of maya, the delusions of the poison of conditioned existence, samsara, hala, hala, removing all of that so we can yeah. see clearly. Uh, and then we have the idea that now the guru is the dispeller of darkness. The guru removes right. the darkness. And so this is where, right. this is the first thing you said, which is why I said that, so, you know, the first yeah, thing. Yeah, no, it's it great. It comes from this, the Guru Stotram. Yes, okay. And, and, I, and, and that's actually what the second thing I wanted to pin or say is that I have not heard anything you've said so far not focused on this as being a spiritual path, like it was that to begin with. So let's say, you know, and I, I do apologize. I hope nobody on the call, it may be clearer for others, but the series one, two, three, four, five, six are split up into those three others, Yoga Chikitsa, Nadishodna, and the, the third one, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And somebody quickly asked a question, and I think we this will be this is a, an excellent example of why, you know, yoga lineage is, is so neat to experience. But somebody said, wait, isn't Nadishodna alternate nostril breathing? So I'm going to try really quick to say like, you know, the nadis are these, you know, nerve centers that run through the body and shodhana is cleaning, uh, cleansing as I understand. But um, nadi shodhana has been sort of used in many other traditions, including in, you know, the Iyengars call it the, um, you know, the, the, the most exalted of pranayams. I mean, we do, I can't tell you how many, like 20 different kinds of, of, yeah. of, of, of even digital breathing before we really get ready for nadi shodhana. Um, but Nadi Shodna to you is something different. So let's talk about that just briefly so we can address that question and then move on to some of the spiritual business. Well, I think you answered it pretty simply. You said Nadi okay. Shodana Pranayama versus Nadi okay. Shodana Asana. So right. okay. this is just the difference between the different limbs of the yoga practice. So there are pranayamas, meaning breath right. movements that work to cleanse the nervous system. And this is very common alternate nostril breathing. And the same thing in Ashtanga yoga. We also have mm -hmm. nadi shodana pranayama that brings right. out, utilizes alternate nostril breathing. But when we're talking right. about the series of asanas, this is nadi shodana asana practice. Okay, so that's got a very it. Clarification. These are asanas. Yeah asanas that have as their basis the cleansing of the nadis. And as my teacher said, there are 72,000 nadis or nervous systems, as we call them, throughout, distributed and disseminated throughout the body, of which the yogi 
through the vehicles of asana, pranayama, mudra, bandha, all of these traditional tools of the hatha yoga practice, are interested in working with the three nadis of spiritual liberation, which are the ida, pingala, the right side, left side, main crossing, alternating uh, nadis, that line, what's called the shashumna nadi, or the central mm-hmm. column of, 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 of like the, the, the sort of spiritual highway of all the nadis, closely right. aligned, but not exactly the same as the nervous, the, the, the spinal cord in the nervous system. Exactly, exactly. And if you do, I'm sure Kino would concur with this, but well, I can't certainly talk about Nadi Shodhanam or Nadi Shodhana Asana, but I can talk about Nadi Shodhana, you know, sort of pranayam and you can feel that you can feel these sides of your body activated and steadying and changing as a result of the digitization of your breath. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's an unbelievable practice. So um, I hope that's helpful for the, for the questioner there. And um, so by the way, for those on the call, you know, this is a 75 minute call. I didn't say that at the very beginning, but those who are regulars on the yoga lineage just call know that we got into 60 minutes at the very beginning and realized, oh my God, we have so much <laughs> more to talk about. And so we, you know, we're going to 15 minutes past the hour so we have plenty of time if you have questions that come up as uh, Kino is talking. Um, I tend to do the best I can to keep channeling through the questions that we intend to bring to you in this you know, holistic look and foundational look at Ashtanga. And so um, I want to go back to the these asana, the one, two, three, four, five, six, like the the the, the root or like the activity when within each of these series is asana. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Okay. And they're based on, and this is me, you know, I, I did take quite a few Ashtanga mm-hmm. classes in Washington, DC in the beginning as I was trying to decide um, you know, where I really wanted, you know, my sort of spiritual home to be, even though I'd been an integral yogi for a while before even Iyengar. Um, it's based on the, the sun salute based on Syrian are all based on Syrian Namaskar or is that too yeah, uh, superficial that, a look? Yeah. Is yeah no, too... I think the way to understand it is maybe, is maybe different than that. So all mm-hmm. of the Ashtanga yoga asana practice is based on coordination of breath with movement, which is the original, right. the original foundation of the word vinyasa. Most people right. today understand vinyasa as the kind of Americanized version of vinyasa flow or something mm-hmm. like this. Without mm-hmm. saying anything against that, the, the more traditional usage, usage of the word vinyasa is this coordination of breath with movement mm-hmm. that traces its roots all the way back to ancient Vedic rituals where priests would perform pujas or offerings into the fire, and every breath was coordinated with a specific ritualized sacred movement. And then... Mm-hmm. When the yoga practice internalized these rituals of purification, we needed mm. to create, a, 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 we needed to kind of uh, sanctify the space of our, of our practice. And we do this through coordination of specific breath with specific movement. So this is probably the foundational element that's carried through. We don't just enter the asana. We, we hold the body in a particular position, breathe in, hold the position, breathe out to enter. And so we do these very specific things, which are called vinyasas uh, mm-hmm. in the Ashtanga method. And these are counted in traditional Sanskrit. So if you join a very traditional Ashtanga yoga class, at some moment, usually I don't do this for beginners, but once people are established in the method, or even to give them a little bit of a taste of it, you'll hear ekam, inhale, dwe, exhale, which is, these are the vinyasas. This is the first <laughs> breath, inhale, raise your hands, but it's ekam, that's the first breath, the first movement, dwe, mm-hmm. exhale, because these are like demarcations in a ritual of purification. And mm-hmm. it's not just, 
trusts that we want you to breathe in this way for this purpose. There's a methodology that's building that begins with that first breath. So that's the foundation that's carried through for everything. Then in terms of pragmatically, every Ashtanga yoga practitioner, with whatever series you do, all begin with the sun salutations. Everybody does sun salutations. Everybody does what's called the foundational or the standing asanas. This by itself, my teacher said, is a complete practice. So you don't even need to do any of the series to get a complete yoga practice. After this, the student then progresses into either one, two, three, four, five, or six, and then ends with what's called the backbending sequence and the closing poses. So the bookends of the Ashtanga practice look the same if you're a brand new student or if you're a 20, 30 lifelong practitioner. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this is something very, very important that we consider the foundational elements of the practice to be the same for all students. And Mm -hmm. these are are asanas that can be uh, modified to an appropriate level. There are variations for each of these, but what doesn't change, regardless of which variation the student might be doing, is the vinyasa, the coordination of breath with movement. Whether you're doing the asana on a chair, whether you're doing the asana without any props, whether you're doing the asana in a reclining position or whichever variation is appropriate for you to do the work of the practice, mm-hmm. the vinyasa method of coordinating breath to movement, that carries through through all through the entire methodology. All the, no matter what the actions are, there's always, yeah. okay. So when you say bookends, are you saying, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, sort of be, left and right, like book, mm-hmm. the begin, do you mean the sun, salut, sun salutations are on one end and what's on the other end? What's closing on the poses. Right? Closing poses. Closing poses. Oh, I see. And the closing poses are the standing and then the backbending always or? Sun salutations and standing are the beginning. Okay, Backbending, got it. shoulder stand, headstand, and what mm-hmm. we call the last three poses are always there. Oh, got it. Okay, okay, great. So I, th- that gives me a nice picture of at least how. So that's that's happening in every Ashtanga class. Every single Ashtanga class. Every single class. So what is it? So in the first uh, other four um, sessions, I would ask the 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 lineage head i started out with like if i were an alien or from mars and i dropped in into your like what would i and then and then with the iyengars i was like well let's forget that one let's say that we run into each other at the grocery store and i've seen you a bunch and we're always like buying tofu in the same aisle and i'm like you know you just look really cool what do you do and you tell me i, I teach yoga and i'm like oh well i want to go to yeah, that class or let's say i do and what if i didn't know anything about your beginning level class, what would I experience when I walked in? Walk me through that experience. Well, the most important thing for me when I teach beginners and the Ashtanga method is Mm -hmm. to walk the thin line between making the practice accessible while educating the student about the lineage, the history, the tradition, to to really encourage the student to come back, to believe in themselves, and to really get into the good feeling that can come in their bodies and their minds from the practice while at the same time instilling kind of a respect for what the yoga practice is about. And if someone comes to me and starts talking about, you know, uh, hey, you do yoga, I want to drop in for a class, usually what I'll say is, that's great, I teach a very traditional style of yoga. So Mm -hmm. when you come in, uh, please be prepared to uh, not have music playing and go deeply within yourself. You know, I I, I put the spiritual journey front and center. And I think that's really important because those students who are in some way going to answer the clarion call to the spiritual journey, those are the ones who belong in my class. And those students who are not yet ready to answer that call within themselves, they're going to find themselves that they don't really like that class. And I would rather have someone 
genuinely interested in uh, the spiritual journey leave with the sensation of, wow, that was awesome, rather than someone who was really looking for something else. And then I tried to bring them in and they were, didn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't right. So I'm really honest about, look, I'm, I'm, yoga for me is a spiritual journey. And that's right from the beginning. Uh, and yeah. you know whether we're doing yeah. breathing, whether, we're, whether I'm introducing you to the mind-body-breath connection, I, 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 even in a beginner class, I will often talk about the yoga sutras and talk about the, the, the philosophy of the practice, because that's mm-hmm. the student that's going to be most inclined to continue the practice with me. Mm-hmm. And I am, have a bunch of questions I want to ask. There's a lot coming in. So I'm going to just FYI, if when I look like I'm not looking at you, it's just because I'm sort of tending to the question. You know what? I, I, in ter- you know, so by the way, Kino and I are going, going to do this, the two of us in two, what would you decide? Three weeks from today, December yeah. 7th. Yeah, we'll send you that link. But it's going to December 7th. We're going to get together on IG and have a live and talk about some of these, like, you know, because we just find that there's so many questions that flow over from these, you know, foundational 101 talks. And so I wonder if we would go there then on, you know, more on the guru and more on the sort of, you know, redefining and updating the guru model. But I'm so curious how you think of yourself as a guru. How are you updating the guru inside you as you do process these um, really fraught and difficult um, moments that are happening in Ashtanga right now? I mean, first of all, let me say, I'm not a guru. I have no intention of being anybody's guru. Um, At best, I can hope to be a yoga teacher that can uh, shed a little bit of light on the path ahead for the students who enter my class. At the best, I can pass on what was passed uh, to me without damaging or harming the tradition. But I'm, I'm no one's guru. You know, I'm, I, I'm, if anything, a fellow student on the path. And if I'm in the class and I'm in the, in the, inhabiting the role of the teacher, for me, it's very much a space of uh, co-creating the experience of the energy of the room to create and hold a space where the students can learn and grow themselves. But yeah. the, the idea of, the, of, of the, the very traditional role of the guru, and, and of course we should back up a little bit and say there mm-hmm. are different types of yoga gurus. And this word guru is not from our culture. We're borrowing from the Indian culture. So we don't have this concept of, te- of, of highly esteemed teacher or master level teacher. We kind of don't right. have a word for that or a concept of that in English. We kind of yeah. have like expert, but that doesn't qualify the reverence of someone that's dedicated their life to the to a certain path. So in India, uh, one of the things that after I dove into the method, I realized is that to be a yoga guru means to be a master level yoga teacher, right? So we have this concept of guru meaning uh, like a spiritual person or someone that can dispel the darkness, mm. lead you into the path of liberation. But when diving into that, we have to understand that this is, if we're looking at the, the, the sort of spiritual liberation element of it, we're looking at someone who could be called a satguru, someone who is liberated themselves. And in no way, shape or form am I a liberated being. I'm just, a, like I said, a fellow student on the path, hoping to make my life a little bit more happier than it was before I started yoga. And yeah. if we can collectively do that together, then I think that's awesome. I think we should each 
as students on the path, utilize the tools that we have to prepare ourselves for what might be a meeting with the Satguru. I don't consider Patabi Joyce a Satguru. I consider him. Can we define Satguru? What Satguru is someone who is a liberated being, someone who Mm -hmm. is in the state of of spiritual enlightenment. So Mm -hmm. look at the, the history of human civilization has not known so many Satgurus, but each time a being who is a Satguru has, has incarnated on this planet, they have changed the planet. So we have the Buddha mm-hmm. who's, you know, teaching change the planet. I would count Jesus Christ as a Satguru whose teaching has right. changed the planet. Same. So we have also in the Tibetan tradition and in other sort of, and, in, and within the, the, in the, you know, the yoga tradition as well, we have many, you know, sadhakas, sadhus, uh, swamis, uh, and, and yogis who are reputed to be uh, sadgurus. I have not met a sadguru in my life. And, and what, I, what I believe is that every single yoga practitioner should utilize the tools that are presented to them so that when that day when the sadguru appears, they know how to put their ego aside and receive that teaching. You know, you don't mm-hmm. want to be the person when the Buddha walks in the room that was like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, you seem like you're kind of full of yourself. Like, I don't really want to learn meditation from you. I'm good on my own. The Buddha exactly. walks in the Swipe room. left. Swipe yeah. left. Yeah, yeah. like next, next. You don't want to be, <laughs> yeah. you want to have the eyes to see the Sadhguru who walks in the room and then, yeah. though, and then be willing to put it all on the line in that moment. You want to discriminate because there's also, you know, Patanjali also talks about Branti Dar right the false guru right the the false perception darshan the the shedding of the light branti the the false so we have also the false guru someone who claims the mantle of the guru and who can commit great harm to would-be disciples under the auspices of spiritual liberation unfortunately i have interacted with with I would say, not say many, but a a, a handful of of false gurus who were utilizing Enough. yeah yeah, utilizing Ashtanga yoga, yoga in general, and other words that were um, appropriated from the sacred lineages of the East to give themselves a false appearance of power and ultimately create harm and usurp that power for personal gain. You know, so I was just having a conversation yesterday about this very thing that, you know, you practice this, you take the time to channel this energy and be in touch with that Shakti, Shakti being this powerful, divine, ever-present energy that is accessible. And please correct me or, or, or add on to it, Kino, if you'd like. And that, you know, we're not practicing. When we practice yoga, we become more sensitive and more aware, but, but, and slash, and much stronger. And that, is power. That's powerful. And that power is a, um, a razor's edge that I think many of these, um, false gurus have exploited because it's very easy to reach through that power and tell yourself because the ever present emergent ego is sort of telling you, you, I don't even know. I don't know how to finish that sentence. What do they think they they obviously think they deserve it. I don't know. But what, what are your thoughts on that? Because it's a powerful practice we're doing. And I feel so much deeper and more powerful in touch with myself when I practice. And I 
I hope that that's what others feel. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the first thing is that every teacher needs a teacher. So yes. one of the things that I think I've noticed in those individuals within Ashtanga and outside of Ashtanga and other lineages and these sorts of things that I've interacted with, that I can personally verify that they were on the path of Branti Darshana, uh, you know, the false guru, someone that would usurp the power in, in, for personal gain, is that right. they themselves uh, left in some ways a lineage. They went on their own and uh, they no longer embraced the role of the student. And so they essentially uh, like took that power for themselves and then, and then sort of went with it. And this yeah. is the thing that I noticed is that when the teacher is no longer a student, then there, and, and, and then the community is no longer empowered to check the ego of the teacher, then, then that individual enters into kind of an echo chamber of, of like minds who only say how wonderful they are, who only believe what they're doing. And anyone who is, you know, voicing a harm is then ostracized as, you know, an outsider and someone who doesn't see the light and these sorts of things. So I think it can right. be very, very dangerous, especially for anyone who's a victim of abuse in these situations, yeah. um, because it's, it's, it's classic, it's classic emotional manipulation. It's classic, it's classic gaslighting. gaslighting. Yeah, exactly. And it can create real damage to sincere seekers who would give their heart and soul to, you know, to be on that path. And, right. and it's important to remember, again, if you're a yoga teacher, you're a human being, you're on the path, you're a student also. And, you know, we're talking about Branti Darshana, we're talking about like the false guru, and this is very, this is very dangerous, uh, you know, and very, a, a very big pit stop. But the other thing to remember is that the teacher, the, the teacher needs a teacher to stay inspired themselves. And part of inspiration comes from humility to recognize mm -hmm. I still have more to learn. You know, I still have some place to go oh within my myself. And yoga teacher burnout is a very big kind of phenomenon that's happening in the world. And I notice that the teachers who feel the most burned out are the ones that don't have a community, don't have a teacher, and need to take it all on on themselves. And they feel very much alone. And they're sort of like either end up burned out or end up in a situation where, you know, they feel almost obligated to claim that heightened power role. And none of that really, you know, goes to uh, support the student's journey, ultimately. So, no. you know, you show up right. in the room, you have a student, you're trying to figure out, like, okay, there they are, so let's start with the sun salutations, great, there, can't do a forward bend, so how can I make this accessible to them? And then, you know, how can I communicate to them that it matters where they breathe in, it matters where they breathe out, that the asana is there as a doorway into themselves, and then, and then ultimately the idea is, if you're there to shine a little bit of light on the path, to pass on the method, then you have to get out of the way at some moment. Then you yourself, totally. you know, delete yourself from the, that path and just like that spark was there and then give it away. Uh, I mean, I have said to my, I've been teaching for 20 years and I have said from the day I started, first of all, the first time I started teaching, I was like, it's a slate of hand, a total accident of the universe that I'm here and you're there, but I'm choosing to be here and you're choosing to be there. So we're entering in this consensual relationship in which I'm claiming to be a teacher. I've done some work but I can't teach without students. And so I'm, you know, I, I want to know how you're learning. Kind of like you and I talked right before we went live. Like you checked in with me, I checked in with you. And here we were having this co very like, co-creative experience where we're sort of, 
you know, checking in with each other as we grow. And at least I I couldn't agree more that I have always said I want to be obsolete in your lives, ultimately. Ultimately, I want you to learn these practices for yourself so that you don't depend on me. But, you know, somebody is asking a question, by the way, on the Q&A, um, and we can't thank, you know, our intrepid producer, Trisha, enough for helping with managing this and our captioners um, who are, will be, you know, publishing. Yoga Lens does this for you all, like a published, you know, sort of transcript of everything that Kino has said, which is so amazing, which also will be played on her podcast. Is it next week you'll be uh, replaying this? If we get the audio, Absolutely. Yeah, great. That's awesome. And so basically, if you look over at the Q&A and see any questions you'd like that you see have been asked that you're also interested in, please upvote them so that I can see them more easily. And so somebody, um, hi, James, I've seen you before, is asking, you know, is is your asana practice changing as you age? Mm. He says, I'm 66 and giving poses back, which I love yeah. as a way of thinking about it. Let's talk about the evolving asana practice. Yeah, so thanks James for continuing to practice and for asking this question. I think it's really important to understand that, I mean, I've, I'm not 60, I've been practicing for more than 20 years, I'm in my 40s, and my asana practice definitely is different than when I was in my 20s. When, as I mentioned before, I was never, I had no prior training in any physical discipline, so I was, I was what I call today body foreign, which means I had no idea what my body was, I was completely like a foreigner in my body, when and someone said, you know, straighten your knee, it was very unlikely that the knee would straighten. If someone said to feel where your pelvis was, I had to take a moment and like think of what the pelvis was even before I could try to even feel it. Um, so from, from my perspective, the, my, I feel like I spent the first 10 years of practice just getting to know my body. So the decisions that I would take in my practice then were not based on intimacy with my body, but were just based on just coming in and just trying to bang it out. And then for me, the journey through eight is also the journey to increased consciousness. So I practice with much more consciousness and body awareness uh, that I, you know, that I, I do now. I do. I notice that, you know, asana practice is not a linear progression. You know, uh, and there are some things that physically, if you were to rate just pure physical performance, I probably maybe even did better when I was unconscious. And now that I'm conscious, I won't take the same choices because I'm aware of the impact that unconscious action and movement has long term on the health and sustainability of the body. So I think that as consciousness increases, that the practice can grow exponentially, while at the same time, we move with intelligence and appropriateness so that maybe Mm -hmm. it doesn't look from the outside looking in. In, like we're making progress, but the internal progress is like a depth that has no end. And for me, the biggest change uh, for me uh, has been that I'm also, uh, I sit what's called Vipassana meditation, and I've been sitting mm. for about 20 years as well. But for the first, I want to say 10 years of my practice, I felt that asana was my primary sadhana or spiritual discipline and practice. And then slowly over the last 10 years, I start to feel like meditation is my sadhana and that asana is awesome and I love it and it creates the foundation, but that I, I want to sit more 
and, and have more refined states of awareness. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's age or if that's spiritual development or, or maybe I've just been jumping for a long time and I'm ready to sit mm-hmm. down. I'm not really sure what it is, but I yeah. noticed that, you know, long-term practitioners seem to go deeper into that mind, body, spirit yeah. connection so that it no longer matters whether, you know, whether they're giving asanas or even whole series back, but that what they're doing is this quality of depth and meaning. Well, as your teacher said, the shanti is mm-hmm. that you're sort of keep swimming into that. And, you know, I, 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 it, it occurs to me to ask the question, does it matter? You know, does it matter? And, and, the, and the does it matter, I guess, on the other end of that question, is that not also what we're doing in redefining and updating the guru model? Because what I hear in so much of what you're saying is this permission giving to the students, but also permission giving meaning not you know do what you want in this class because there's like music going and we're feeling good and we'll maybe like touch this like pose if you feel like it if you don't feel like it those sets of feels you know but it, it, it's actually listen to what I'm saying I am instructing you I am instructing you through a lineage that was instructed to me but what happens on the other end of that? And, and I guess permission may not be the right word. Like, what's that line between the permission I hear you and I talking about and that the students have to own their practice and the responsibility that they have to keep showing up? How do we talk about that? Hmm. Well, so the permission is the permission to, to do the work you know, like that the work is theirs. So this is like, it's your permission, which means you can say yes and you can say no, but you have to know your body and you have to know what's available for you. And you have to know whether you're just, you know, tired or whether this is actually not advised for you today. So the permission aspect isn't just do whatever you want. You have permission to just go do any asana that you want and permission to just, you know, play whatever music you want and just do whatever you want. That's that's definitely not the Ashtanga methodology. The permission yeah. that's sort of given is, is more the space that's held for the student mm-hmm. to dive deeper into the spiritual journey. And mm-hmm. the idea is that, you know, uh, in the past, maybe what has been done, particularly in dogmatic situations, when the student said, I can't today, sometimes what's gone on and what has created harm is where the voice of authority said, do it anyway, at the detriment of the student's agency and potentially at the detriment of creating injury or harm. And that's not what we want in any, in any, you know, in any case. At the same time, there kind of has to be this way of, you know, we so often just don't believe we can do anything. You know, we're there and we're like, I'm scared. I don't want to do the headstand. I'm scared. I don't really feel I can put my leg behind my head. I just, I can't, I can't. It's just not for me. It's not for me. And then as a teacher, you're like, you totally can do this. And the, and the student's like, I just, I don't, I don't really like my, my legs aren't the right size. And I read in an article online that you have to have, mind. you know, the femur has to be set like this. And I don't know if I have that bone structure, so I better not try. And the teacher has to be like this calm voice of, okay, can we find a way so that you can comfortably do the work? Like, where can we meet? Because the teacher holds a space of, hey, you know, I've seen a lot of students and I think you can kind of do this. I can judge that, you know, you, you're sitting there in lotus position and you're lying there in pigeon basically sleeping. I'm pretty sure that with those two together, you're going to be okay with your leg behind the head. And the student's like, no, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then so there's some place of, hey, I'm not going to let you off the hook. We're going to find a way so that it's comfortable enough for you to do the work. And this is probably a really important distinguishing feature in the Ashtanga methods. We don't let people off the hook. It's like, look, you're, you, you're, you can't run away from this. We can't delete this asana. We're going to find a way so that you can do it. And if that means doing it on a chair, if that means you 
using the blocks and the straps or going against the wall. You have to find the way to work. Some students um, come into the Ashtanga path and think like, oh, Ashtanga is known for assists. So I've been in some classes where, this was not my class, I'm a visiting teacher. Sometimes I go and give like guest workshops in different places. And I went into this one, um, this one studio where they had trained the students that the role of the teacher was to give assists. And if mm. you wanted an assist, you would raise your hand and snap your fingers. And I walked into the room and then like the students were snapping at me like this. And I thought, what's going on? You know, I'm like, I'm not a waitress. Mm. You know what I mean? And I went up yes. and I said, what's going on? Are you okay? I want an assist right now. And I was like, okay, well, what are you working on? I want you to put my legs behind my head. And I just, you know, and, and so I, I'm not going to do that. And, and I'll, I'll usually say in that instance, you know, if you're willing to try and put in the work, I'll meet you halfway. But if you want me to show up and just do it, like I said, like, this is not, Thai massage is an excellent example of the relationship yeah. is you have a private relationship with someone and they're bending and twisting your body. And I am not yeah. a massage therapist. I've never been to a massage yeah. training school. I'm not yeah. equipped or skilled to do that, but I can right. help or assist you help yourself. And so yes. that's, like, that's an interesting methodology of, okay, so sometimes then the student gets too dependent on the assist or then, you know, and then the teacher's role is, okay, you need to show up and do the work. So in mm-hmm. Ashtanga method, we are very interested in figuring out a way not to make the student feel good necessarily. This is what John and I were talking about yesterday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but to find yeah. a way to inspire them to do the work and the work of the practice is sometimes ugly, gritty. It involves crying, shaking, burning. It involves feeling like crap sometimes because you're facing your demons. And if you always need it to feel good, then we're, we're back into the cycle of attachment to pleasure, aversion from pain. And this is one of the main obstacles we're trying to purify in the yoga practice. So we're trying to create tapas. I want to create the perfect environment for the spark of tapas, the spark of that fire of purification to get lit in the student. Well, and you also earlier talked about that fire uh, and spark of knowledge, the, the, of light mm-hmm. that the guru, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, ignites. It's very interesting that you talked about that spark. Yeah, of you know, that's actually, uh, yeah, yeah. That, they're the same, right? So here's yeah. the idea, right? So that's that this uh, yoga sutra, I can't remember which one it's from, but I think it's a uh, book two in like the 40s, right? So Kaya Indriya Siddhir, Ashadiksaya Tapasyaha, right? Kaya Indriya Siddhir. So, so this is the, the perfection of tapas right? Uh Siddhir or Siddhi is the perfection. Tapas is this this purification that we do from within. Kaya, body, indriya is the senses. Kaya, indriya, siddhir. When these become perfected, right? So how do we do that? Ashuddhiksayat burns through impurities with that spark of the fire of purification, which burns through physical impurities, mental impurities, emotional impurities. And then once all has been removed, just like when gold is purified or in the process of making ghee, then what remains is only what's pure and that is the light of knowledge, what is referred to in Sanskrit as the jnana diptir, or, or in this sutra, the body then glows with an inner light, that light being right. the light of knowledge. Yes, I love that. Yes, exactly. You know what I'd love to do? There's a bunch of questions. We have 10 minutes. Okay. And I wonder if we could do like a rapid fire. Yeah, let's do it. Ask you some questions and like really elevate some of these really cool questions that are that are coming in. How can, and I think you've kind of answered this, but I'd love to hear, Have you? how can you keep your students motivated when they have to repeat the same structure in every class. Is there any room for creativity? Two questions. I know I know the answer to the second one. What about the first? 
First, the body changes every single day. So the mirror of the asanas gives the reflection to, uh, you know, to the student. The progress is only measured when you do the same thing every day. So it's the progress itself that's encouraging. Look, yesterday I was so terrified I could not go upside down. Look, today I went upside down. Look, now, two weeks later, you're helping me. I'm doing headstand. That yeah. itself is the motivation because you do the same thing over and over again so that right. you get better at it. And when you get better at something, you see those small little bits of improvement, that itself is the motivation that keeps you coming back. The creativity is how am I going to help inspire the student? So this student right. needs to help like this. This student needs to help like that. How can I be there so I can be the bridge or the catalyst to their progress? When they feel the progress, then definitely they've tasted that magic to come back. Yeah, exactly. It's beautiful. Who's your current teacher? My current teacher is still Sharat Joyce. So I, you know, have, I've been practicing with him on Zoom some few times during the pandemic. And I look forward to when I can go back to India. I miss India. I miss being a student so much. But here at Miami yeah. Life Center, we have a really awesome sangha or community around Ashtanga. So today I practiced with Esme, who's one of our teachers here at Miami Life Center in our new space in the yoga garage in Miami. And I take, the, I take class with all of our teachers whenever I get a chance. That's a, okay, great. So it, to authentically follow Ashtanga, is there a certain God being worshipped or is this spiritual journey subjective to each individual? Very good question. I'll answer you with my teacher's words. But Tavi Joyce said, you do your practice. You think about God. Any God you like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Iyengar said, find God in your toes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's great. So hold on, there's no a, particular a, God. A, However, we should bear, we should, we do have to, of course, always take a look and acknowledge that the yoga practice comes from the traditional Hindu culture of India. And we can't, yeah. you know, whitewash the, you know, whitewash away the Hindu origins of yoga. My teacher, however, said, you know, you can do this practice, think about, think about God, any God you like, meaning you don't have to convert to Hinduism to practice mm-hmm. yoga. You also don't necessarily need to, like, you find the word for divinity, like this could be, you know, the grand oneness of the universe. The vibrational, you know, yeah. source yeah. or something like yeah. that. It can also be Jesus. It can yeah. also be Buddha. It can also be Allah, you know, so your yeah. God, how you discover yeah. God. It can also be, you know, Jehovah, whatever, whatever yeah. works for you. Yeah. Yeah. That for me, it, for, like there was something like the light being, you know, the sort of thing for me, it's always been the dark and the quiet and it's dead. Like I, that's been the word, but anyway, and you know, Kino and I on November the 7th at 6 p.m. are going to be doing an IG live in which we get to grab some of these questions that we aren't able to get to and more specifically talk about some of these bigger issues with regard to updating the guru model and how it is that we transcend, continue to transcendentalize this practice. And so um, one person is asking a really brass tax question, which I think is great. What would you recommend for people who don't have access financially or geographically and or for Ashtanga in-person classes? This person was having difficult time during the pandemic doing mm-hmm. Mysore because mm-hmm. it was just so hard to well, feel absolutely. connected. Well, I can't speak for other studios, but we believe mm-hmm. in economic accessibility. And so we make both scholarships and work-study mm-hmm. programs available for our in-person classes. And in all of my in-person classes, whether it's traveling or whether I'm teaching here in Miami and also online, I have a scholarship form that prioritizes marginalized uh, communities and students from marginalized communities, but is really mm-hmm. open to everyone. Uh, so if you... Uh, if you have a local studio and you are unable to join because of economic situation, I recommend that you reach out and talk to them. Yeah. And I've never really known a yoga studio not to create a space for a very dedicated, willing student who wants to be part of the sangha, but just can't afford it. 
Right. That's beautiful. Yes, yes, yes to the nth. Um, I would say that's been my experience also. Um, this is a great question. How do you help the yogi uh, modify the poses when the movement comes with the breath and the class is moving on, yet the student hasn't been able to get into the work of the pose before the flow moves on? The traditional Ashtanga yoga practice is taught in the Mysore style method where the student can stop and take as many breaths as they need to to sort that out and you can sit down with them and organize it. Uh, now, if you're teaching a guided class, which is where a lot of beginner classes and the class that we'll do on Thursday is going to be a talk-through class, the Mysore style method requires a student to memorize the order of postures, which is yet another reason you need to do the same thing every day because we don't memorize yeah. things anymore. We used to memorize, you know, Hamlet's speech or whatnot, but now we just ask Siri. So it's useful to come back every <laughs> single day and do the same thing over and over again so you can memorize it. In a guided class and the flow of the class, as a teacher... What I usually like to do is kind of group the people who are beginners or the people who are going to need modifications who don't know what those modifications are together. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then I will go and demonstrate only the modification in front of them. The students mm -hmm. who know the asana and are proficient already in whatever they're doing, the path that they're on, whether it's a modification, a variation, but they know what they're mm -hmm. doing, they don't need mm -hmm. that extra instruction. Lastly, mm -hmm. at any time you're teaching a guided class, you can stop the class and do a mini workshop breakdown. This is beneficial for all those students who are super proficient. Some of them are probably teaching. Yeah. And it's yeah. also good for people that feel impatient to just sit there and feel impatient. You know, I can't believe we're going to have a beginner breakdown. Good. That's your yoga today. Sit there and feel yeah. that. And exactly. Then, and that's very useful as well. It totally is. Exactly. And by the way, Kino is teaching a class at exactly this time on Thursday at 12 o'clock. Um, and, you know, I'm going to say it's, I love it. Every lineage head has chosen a different approach and many have brought in somebody to demonstrate for them and others have are only doing it themselves and Kino is in the latter category. So Kino will be doing the practice and teaching the practice. So I really hope you join us Thursday at 12 o'clock Eastern for a masterclass in, um, in Ashtanga. Although I wonder if you smile when I say that because I told Lois Steinberg once in the younger like masterclass, she's like, what does master mean? What is masterclass? I am just a practitioner of 40 years. So that's what we're calling it. But we understand that it's a sort of a, a moving, a, a, a debatable t uh, title, I guess. But um, with the background of vinyasa as a ritual practice of breath and movement coordination, what would you say when going through a series, and you kind of addressed this, but let's see if you have anything else to say, through a series and skipping an asana to continue with the next? Like, can the practitioner just skip the asana and move on to the next one? It depends. So mm -hmm. if you're looking at giving someone just a preview of what the Ashtanga practice is, you can skip around and give people a preview. In fact, we might do that mm -hmm. on Thursday. But mm -hmm. if you are going to practice the very traditional Mysore style method, it's better not to skip but to modify mm -hmm. and to come up with mm -hmm. an alternative option. You know, any asana can, you know, if you can't do this, do this instead. If you can't totally. do this, do this instead. So then people say, well, I have to skip for time. And then there are, there are different things that can be kind of condensed. For example, in the Ashtanga method, we jump back and we jump through uh, between every side of every asana. So we'll do like right side of one asana, and then we jump back to Chaturanga, go into upward facing dog, downward facing dog, jump through to seated, do the other side, then we do it again before the next asana. So one thing mm -hmm. that for time, people can skip sometimes, or if they're just too tired or getting really mm -hmm. exhausted or fatigued or have an injury, is to skip the jump back and the jump through between the sides 
lives. Mm -hmm. And this is a way to kind of make the practice a little shorter. If you're short on mm -hmm. time, then you don't necessarily need to skip the asanas, but we can condense that movement while still kind of honoring that coordination of breath with movement. That's great. I love that. And, you know, I think that this next question I have, which we've got two minutes, is really a beautiful way to end. At least it's it's in my lane because I love this. I wanted to give the, the fullest look at what the Ashtanga practice is from, you know, the person who is definitely poised to do that. While the practice is very clear in terms of asana, how does Ashtanga teach pranayama, mantra, and meditation? Mm, very, very good question. I so know. pranayama is considered to be an advanced practice within the Ashtanga method. I had the great fortune to learn pranayama from Patabi Joyce himself. I've also studied very, very briefly with uh, Tiwari, who is the pranayama master at Kaivalyadam, the pranayama institute outside of Pune. And mm. uh, he's a true master of pranayama. I would, I, would, I would have been so honored to have spent more time with him. Um, mm. So uh, in the Ashtanga method, we consider pranayama to be very advanced. So the Ashtanga yoga pranayama practice is taught after the student has at least completed, you know, a, a certain number of years of practice and has demonstrated that they're not going to run away from the practice when they reach a sustainable level of sort of mind, body, and spirit integration. Mantra mm -hmm. practice, we start right from the beginning. So... Now at the Shala, there's chanting class, I think three times a week, where you have to learn all the Sanskrit names of all the asanas, how to count properly in Sanskrit, how to pronounce the opening and closing prayers in the Ashtanga method and do some other, other chants which are relevant to the awakening of the spiritual journey within the practice. The meditation is considered to be the most advanced form of, uh, of sort of, of sadhana. And I remember on my first trip to India, I asked my teacher, Patabi Joyce, if I could do a meditation. And he laughed at me and he said, you meditation, one hour sitting, thinking your country, your food, your home, one hour yeah. thinking, thinking, thinking. And yeah. it's very difficult yeah. to sit and not think. So, but then I asked him, look, I want to sit. Can I try? Sure. Sure. Go try. You know, uh, so it's sort of like, look, right. if the student really wants to start sitting, it won't do them any harm. They can do it. My recommendation, and this is from me personally within the Ashtanga path, we have, again, mantra directly from the beginning, pranayama considered to be very advanced because it's working with the nervous system. And then meditation is, is either when the student starts to desire, or in my opinion, after five years. If you have a five-year mm -hmm. yoga practice of Ashtanga yoga or really any discipline and you haven't started a sitting practice, I recommend yeah. at that point everybody should start developing a sitting practice because you're beginning to lay the foundation for the more subtle aspects of the spiritual journey. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. 
Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.